would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 20. After a break of nearly four months, we return this morning to our studies in the Gospels. We're nearing the end of the Gospel of John. And having followed John's account of the resurrection appearances that Jesus made in chapter 20, first to Mary Magdalene, and then to the ten in the upper room, we have one more appearance in chapter 20 before John gives what at first appears to be an ending statement for the book. Verses 30 and 31. He could well have ended the book there, and we would have said, well, that's great. He ends up telling us exactly why he wrote the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we might well assume he's done. That's it. He gave a concluding statement. But actually goes on for another chapter. I'd rather think that the possibility is, is that chapter 21 should be viewed, yes, in relationship to chapter 20 very clearly, but also in a sense as an epilogue. Again, John's a book that had a prologue. In chapter 1, the first 18 verses, gives us a prologue of everything that, uh, all the major themes that were to follow in the book. And then uh, we have this epilogue in which uh, some final work Jesus does with these disciples to prepare them for their future ministry. I think it needs to be seen just in that way. Their future work, their future ministry did require this final chapter uh, to be disclosed. And so the final resurrection appearance in chapter 20 at least is to Thomas. Later on, it's to the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. But in chapter 20, it is to Thomas. And it's an appearance that takes place one week after his resurrection. It's a peculiar thing that, that, that John waits to verse 24 to inform the reader that the day that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, appeared to the twelve, not only was the twelve minus Judas, but also minus Thomas. Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came that first Lord's Day to them in the upper room. Now, John does not give us an explanation for his absence. Had he not heard that Mary had seen the Lord? Had he not heard that Peter and John had run to the tomb and found it empty? Um, Was he not responsive to that word? Because maybe he was... Well, we call him the doubter, but really the unbeliever, really throughout this account. Where he had been, we don't know. When he finally made his appearance among the other disciples, we're not told. But when he does arrive, the other disciples simply echo the report of Mary. Mary said in verse 18, I've seen the Lord. The ten say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. What a declaration to make. We've seen the Lord. The Jesus who died upon the cross now lives and our eyes have beheld him. We have seen the Lord. But again, Thomas' response in this whole section has earned him the name of Doubting Thomas. 
But, you know, you look up in the dictionary the meaning of the word doubt, and it's usually a feeling or a sense of uncertainty about a matter. When you doubt something, it's not you're sure that it's not true. You just don't know. You're uncertain. One wonders why Thomas has been given the name of Doubting Thomas when he responds to this report that he's been given that the Lord has been seen not with doubting, but with denying. He's fully convinced that whatever has been going on in his absence, an appearance of Jesus in their midst is not a possibility. He's not uncertain. He's certain that the disciples had seen the last of Jesus in the flesh. That Jesus had died, that Jesus had been buried, the dead are dead, and buried people are not seen alive again. I don't think there was a smidgen of doubt in doubting Thomas. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, he says, I will never believe. Not only do I not believe now, I'm never going to believe unless I'm able to get that concrete an appearance of Jesus where I can take my fingers and put it into the nails. You know, when you begin to talk like that, when you're talking about your Lord, the one you called Lord for three and a half years, whose word you've heard and whose word you've hung on and whom you've trusted and whom you've followed and whom you've believed and you've had a sense that this person is not like any other person. Who else can still the winds and the waves? Who else can do the things that this Jesus did? And now you see he's been crucified. Nails have been driven into his hands, in his feet. A spear has pierced his side. To refer to those wounds in that way. To say, unless I put my fingers into the nail, the wounds that the nails left, unless I put my hand into the side, I wouldn't believe. You're not expecting to see the one whom you're talking about. You're not expecting Jesus to show up. Quite a dramatic scene that John paints for us. And it does raise questions. And principally, my thoughts are, I wonder why Jesus didn't wait for Thomas to get there. Why? Why do you keep him in suspense for what might have been a whole week before he shows up again? I understand that it's Lord's Day to Lord's Day and Jesus is with his disciples on the Lord's Day. I know that, that aspect of it. But yet a whole week, no appearances of Jesus to this man who has not been privy to what the other disciples have been privy to. Why do you wait till he was there? But we know in John's account of the life of Jesus, Jesus is fully aware of everything that pertains to his life, his ministry, his cross, his resurrection, and that he stands in full control of these things. He's not subject to events. He is master of events. He knew Peter would deny him. He knew that Jesus, that Judas would betray him. He knew the rest would flee. He knew Thomas wouldn't be there. But he makes no attempt to wait till he comes to reveal himself to Thomas along with the others. Thomas was part of the twelve. 
part of the ones chosen to be his eyewitnesses, his ear witnesses, to be with him, to see the things he did and to know the things he taught, that he would be the, his emissaries into the world to convey the gospel message to the world. And now the most important part of the witness bearing that these apostles were to do is, is at least for Thomas, delayed a week. They were to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And Thomas isn't there when Jesus appears in resurrection glory. I want to explore with you a bit the matter of this delay, what the reasons our Lord might have had for that delay. I want to do it in the way of doing a couple of things. First of all, I want to say something about Thomas himself and his character, particularly as it's revealed in John's Gospel. And I want to say something about this great confession that Thomas makes. And finally, I want to say something about the way the chapter is concluded in a call to faith. So let's begin with Thomas's character. Now, Thomas is not a character of major importance in what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's only mentioned once in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when each of those writers lists the names of the apostles that Jesus chose. Nothing else is said about Thomas in those Gospels. But John, interestingly enough, mentions Thomas no less than seven times. Four times in chapter 20. But three times in other places as well. I mentioned chapter 21 being an epilogue. But it's in chapter 21 that Thomas is named again. And he's named in conjunction with Peter. I find that interesting. Look at chapter 21 and verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, and then Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two others. So you have five more disciples, about seven altogether, that go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But it's noticeable, for me at least, that Thomas is mentioned right next to Simon Peter's name. Why, is it, why isn't Simon Peter's name followed by Nathaniel or the sons of Zebedee or the two other disciples? Why is Thomas right next to Peter? Remember, it's Thomas that concludes chapter 20. Jesus has a reckoning with Thomas's unbelief at the end of chapter 20. And then at the end of chapter 21, Jesus has a reckoning with Peter. A reckoning about Peter's, I think, his denial. I mean, three times he denied Jesus, and three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Seems something of a parallel between the three denials and the three confessions of love. Interesting, both of these chapters end with a reckoning Jesus has with the disciple about something about them that was clearly deficient. Unbelieving Thomas and denying Peter. And both take place, not immediately, but a while after. I think what John wants us to do is he wants us to link together in our minds these two accounts by putting Peter and Thomas together. He wants us to link those up. And he wants us to see that there's no immediate confrontation 
with Thomas. It's not the same day he says those words, then Jesus appeared. A week passes. It's not immediately after Peter denies Jesus that Jesus appears, although he did appear and look at him and Peter went out weeping. But there's a delay. Both men are left to consider for a while the factors in their lives that have led them to the particular actions that they took, the words they uttered, and perhaps to ask themselves the question why. Peter's left to consider his denials and the weakness of his understanding and character that made him susceptible to such a thing. And so it is with Thomas. We need to understand that both of these men, Thomas and Peter, were men who were to be vital links in the purposes of God in the spread of the gospel. Peter was the leading apostle. He had the status. And everyone else looked to him. He was in closer proximity to Jesus than most of the others. Clearly he was a leader. At the day of Pentecost, clearly he goes on to be a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's a leader in even the writing of scripture. So he is a man of eminent stature and eminent status. And Jesus knew his purposes for Peter. Thomas, at least not that so much we know about him in scripture, he's not mentioned again. But in the reputed accounts of his labors in the history of the church or in the things that are told about the labors of the apostles, it's understood that the tradition is that Thomas went further than any of the other apostles. Paul went to the extremity of the Roman Empire, one might say. Thomas went beyond the Roman Empire. Traditional accounts of Thomas venturing out to preach the gospel as far as among the Tamil peoples of southern India. Now those of you who come to Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting know about the Tamil people because we get regular letters from our brother Pastor Bala who labors in Auckland, New Zealand and to whom God's given a wonderful ministry amongst the Tamil peoples of southern India. I'm sure Pastor Bala has a lot to say about Thomas, as he's uh, well loved and regarded amongst the peoples uh, who see him as their apostle, as the one who came to southern India to work among them and to bring the gospel to them. So the point is that Jesus had great plans for both of these men, but great plans in which there were debilitating character issues that had to be addressed. For these men to have any real form of usefulness in the work of the church. Let's get back to Thomas now and his character. John gives us other incidences where we have Thomas's own words out of the abundance of the heart the the mouth speaks. So we can kind of gauge Thomas's heart by his words. And the two instances that precede the event of his protestation of disbelief in a resurrected Jesus, the first happens in chapter 11 and verse 16, when the report comes that Lazarus is sick, and Jesus again delays. And Jesus loves to delay. He knows what he's going to do, but he also wants to see what's in people's hearts. 
And he wants people to see what's in their hearts. So before he acts, um, he waits. He delays. And by the time he's ready to go, the report is given that Lazarus has died. Lazarus is dead. And in response to Jesus' words about the death of Lazarus, Thomas pipes, chimes in. Thomas chimes in. He says something. I think we read it. We shake our heads and say, what in the world? What does Thomas say? He says, let us also go that we may die with him. What else a cheering proposition? <laughs> let us go that we may die with him. It's hard to know exactly what Thomas was thinking, but one thing is clear. This is not your garden variety optimist. Um, he probably thinks he's coming into Judea again, and Jesus is violently opposed by the religious leaders. This may be the death of us all. So let's go into the, well, at least, you know, Bethany was right near Jerusalem, so you're going into the territory where Jesus' enemies are there, and maybe this is going to be wrong to die. Chapter 14 and verse 5, Jesus has spoken about leaving. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. And the place where he's going, he says, is the Father's house of many mansions to prepare a place for them. And that if he goes, he will come again, that where he is, you will be also. And he says that uh, you know the way. Thomas's response in verse 5 is, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? He's almost, again, denying Jesus' own words. And he's looking upon, again, the situation quite concretely. Um, and he's not really looking for information about the Lord, except to, to basically, I would think, to deny the things that Jesus is saying, or at least to be troubled about Jesus' words, and to react in a way that was not looking upon the situation with again optimism I think he's thinking only things can only get worse things can only get worse I think of Jesus in some of the accounts we have in the gospels would chide his disciples with such words as O ye of little faith it might be concluded that Thomas certainly was a man of little faith maybe possessing the least faith of all of the disciples Jesus said except if you have the faith that the, great, the size of the grain of a mustard seed, great things will occur. Perhaps this was not even a grain of a mustard seed, maybe half a grain or an eighth of a grain. Not a whole lot of faith. There was a dismal outlook that Thomas seemed to have. And the reality is that in these two preceding instances, this negative attitude, this reaction... Let us go, that we may die with him. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? In each instance, is followed by incidents and statements in which Thomas's meager faith is rebuked. He says, Lazarus is dead. Let us, he says, let us go, that we may die with him. And then Jesus rebukes that unbelief at the tomb when he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. You're talking about everybody dying when the Lord of life is in your midst. Lazarus is dead. Well, that's the end of everything for him. That's the end of everything maybe for us as well. 
And Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the author of life. It's not as if Thomas didn't behold other instances of Jesus raising the dead. He did. He did. Of Jesus still in winds and waves, he did. Of Jesus walking on water, he did. Of Jesus multiplying loaves and fish, plenty of signs for him to believe. And yet belief was not a reality to him. And so he's rebuked. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? That gets rebuked by the very next words when Jesus declares, I am the way. I am the way. As well as the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think these two instances, his negativity about life itself, his negativity about the way, did Jesus really know it? Can he bring us there? Gets rebuked by Jesus' own words. He should have learned the lesson by now. He can't just look upon things as he sees it concretely with his own eye. But there's a word that comes from God that needs to be factored in. There are promises given by God through which we're to see life in a different way. Not life as it is, as life as God has said it will be. What God has said He will do. What God has promised reality will be. We live in the light of the promises of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We might want to consign this earth to the, the scrap heap and say, what's the use? But God says a great day is coming. We should live in, in the light of that reality that we are heirs of that future age. The, the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of, of delight, abundance of peace. Thomas should have learned to live his life in, in the face of the promise. But now he's still that disciple that hasn't quite gotten it. Hasn't quite gotten it. Think of him. He's in the midst of a bunch of rejoicing guys who are just thrilled with what has occurred. We've seen the Lord. and given him glad reports of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He looks at the joy of his fellow disciples. And he says, I'm not seeing things through their eyes. I'm seeing things through my own eyeballs, with all of my own native negativity and pessimism. And he forgets the words of Jesus. He forgets the raising of Lazarus. He forgets the power of Jesus' words and works that he's privileged to witness for more than three years. And he chooses to live his life in depression, in despair, and in desperation. He had a week. To look upon the joyful faces of his fellow disciples who spoke of the Lord's presence in their midst, who testified to the reality of his livingness. He had a whole week to evaluate himself in the light of their joy and to see his own pessimism rebuked. To ask himself, what in the world, world is wrong with me? Can I be the only one that's right? They're all wrong and I'm alone and right and standing in the face of Jesus' own words of promise. What in the world has happened to make these others who should be in the dumps along with me be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory? And why am I not? Why am I not?
Eight days later, the disciples again are inside the room. Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, said, Peace be with you. He says that to Thomas as well. Peace be with you. Thomas, you too. Even you who have denied himself peace. Denied himself joy in believing. Then Jesus speaks directly to him and he rebukes his unbelief. He rebukes his failure to see life and to live life in the light of God's promises. He stands before them as the fulfillment of God's promises. And I think he himself is is rebuked. Jesus repeats his own words to him. Put your finger in the wounds. Put your hand in my side. I don't think Peter did, uh, Thomas did that. Because now he had come to faith. He had come to believe. He had come to know that God's word was good as gold. That God is the God who watches over his word to perform it. No word from God could ever fail of its fulfillment. The Jesus who said he would be, he would lay down his life for his sheep and he would take it again, has in fact taken his life again and now stands in the midst of his disciples. And it's at that point we read that Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. We have this word of confession. My Lord and my God. I don't know if during the week there was some change in Thomas's position, whether there might have been a weakening of his unbelief, maybe a sense that maybe they're right and I'm, I'm wrong, or maybe it was just the reality of this instantaneous appearance of Jesus right there and then, that single moment of seeing him. But unbelieving Thomas now knew. He had the eyes of his heart enlightened he had the God who called light to shine in the midst of darkness to shine into his heart to reveal the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ see faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God but it's the word of God that brings us to see Jesus it's the word of God that gives us a sight of Jesus It's not the word of God necessarily that tells us, well, how should Christians handle their tongue and their speech? That's all important instruction that Christians take seriously. We take it seriously because we've seen Jesus. Our eyes have beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. The disciples saw him enfleshed. And by faith we come to believe that he is enfleshed. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. So Thomas now believing makes this climactic confession of faith in Christ. My Lord and my God. Thomas is finally able to put all the pieces together and to see in Jesus the God of Israel enfleshed. To behold in Jesus one who has unrivaled lordship 
and sovereignty. One who's to be worshipped and served joyfully and exclusively. This is the Christian confession. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit revelation through the sight of the risen Christ. Again, it wasn't like Mary. You saw Him and didn't know who He was. He has seized Him and, and risen from the dead and knows. And in knowing, He confesses. This is the Christian confession without which we continue to walk in darkness, to walk in despair, to walk in unbelief. But in which confession we come into the embrace of a saving gospel, a saving God who rescues us from our sins, who rescues us from our unbelief, who rescues us from our pessimism, who rescues us from our distress. And other Christians who natively are pessimistic, just like Thomas. But I also know that God is able to address those matters of a native pessimism with the joy that abounds, with the hope that abounds, with the reality that we are not going to go up to Bethany and die. That we're not going to be lost not knowing the way. Isn't it a blessing to see a guy like Thomas not written off? Not just said, well, hey, Thomas, you've seen enough, no more. That Jesus still has a concern to use this man mightily to bring the gospel to a further geographic expanse than any of the other disciples did. We may give up on God, but apparently He doesn't often give up on us. His continued mercies are shown to us, extend to us, meet us in all of our weakness. You know, sometimes, I know God says... You should not tempt him. But then there are times when God he seems to bend his own rules. Gideon says, let there be dew on this, on this fleece. And it, it appears. God's concerned to strengthen the faith of this man Gideon. He has purposes for him. God's pleased sometimes it seems to bend what the normal rules are that you shouldn't even engage in some quick, some problems of faith and if you do God's just going to abandon you not necessarily not necessarily you just heard of a man who was a mighty preacher years ago we had great hopes for him and he left the faith and for years some 20 years no one even knew at least I didn't know where he was just to hear that God has restored him God's restored him he came back to the church that disciplined him 20 years ago and they saw the reality of his restoration and they lifted the discipline 20 years later. God's mercy is without bounds, without limits. All of his ways are mercy and faithfulness. And so it's in the light of Jesus appearing to Thomas in this post-resurrection appearance. It's in the light of his confession of faith that Jesus speaks to the issue of faith 
in the final words of the encounter with Thomas, and then John speaks of the issue of faith in the conclusion of the chapter. Jesus says, first of all, to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Well, in a sense, yes. He believes because he has seen him. But the fact is, folks, there's other ways to see than just the appearance of Jesus enfleshed in our presence. That our Lord does not need to ascend to the throne of his glory and come into our midst so that we then finally have confidence that in fact death did not overtake him. And that he is victorious over death. And that he is in fact all that his word claims him to be. Moses endured, we're told, in Hebrews chapter 11, seeing him who was invisible. I know God appeared to him in a burning bush. Yet in the face of everything that he saw before him that said, never, can't happen. You're not going to redeem this people from Egyptian bondage. Give up. He endured through the persecution, through the opposition, through all the dangers, through all the what-ifs. He endured seeing him who is invisible. Faith is a way of seeing. It's a way of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. It's a way of understanding who God is and what great things God has done. It's a way of beholding the reality that the promises God has given, God has fulfilled. The reality, as we saw last week, of the heavens that opened and the Lord having come down in the person of Emmanuel. God with us, come to save his people from their sins. Thomas had his unbelief erased by seeing Jesus. But Jesus speaks now of a blessedness. A blessedness. He didn't say, Tom, Thomas, you're blessed because you've seen me and believed. No. He says, you, you've seen me and believed. Well, not much to be said about that. But there is something to be said about the reality of true blessedness. Now, blessedness is a word that often appears in the scriptures that speaks of happiness, but also speaks of really the restoration of the curse becoming a blessing, where we live in the light of God's original intent to bless man his image, that man would walk with him and he would walk with his image bearers. Man's made for blessing, seed of creation. He blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We live and exist in this world to know God's blessing. What a horror show to know God's curse. What a horror show to be told to depart ye cursed into everlasting darkness. To not know the blessing of God's word that says, Come ye blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Jesus declares that blessing, that blessing comes to those at least in the majority of the cases, there was like 12 exceptions, but in the majority of the cases, it comes to those who have not seen and yet believe. Now we don't believe against evidence and fact and reality. It's not that we believe in the dark. We believe those eyewitnesses who have declared they saw Jesus. In his word, we have no real reason not to believe. And we believe in the light of God's own promise well before it ever happened that this is what he would do. And we believe in the light of the whole history of what God has done in Christ to establish his church, again, against all odds. Who would have thunk in the first century that the 21 centuries would pass and there'd be groups of people meeting throughout the world who would call Jesus blessed? 
That's God's work. We are blessed because we have believed in the way that most people come to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come by seeing. It comes by hearing. It comes by God's word. Being blessed to our understanding so that our understanding is enlightened. Our hearts are opened. Paul spoke of Jesus to a group of women by a riverside in Acts 16. And the Bible tells us God opened the heart of Lydia. And she believed the things that were spoken by Paul. That's how it happens most often. And then John gives that as the conclusion of the book. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. These are written. These are written. The seven signs that John calls our attention to in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith comes by what is written in the book of God about Jesus the incarnate Son of God. It's the inscripturated Word of God that yields faith in the incarnate Word of God. And it's a little bit hard to know. The, the verbs could either mean that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But I believe John's Gospel covers both bases. It's a good book to give to unsaved people to come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah whom God has promised. He is the Son of God, equal with the Father, full of grace and truth. And that faith is that which brings life through Him. Why should anybody like Thomas remain in the misery of darkness, despair, the misery of sin and unbelief, when God has come in history, when God has come in the person of His Son to give life in His name? If you're not a believer this morning, go that you would come to faith. Not because I can pull some kind of a miracle that you would see that the gospel is true. But God himself has validated the reality of his word in that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that Jesus lives, and that by faith everyone who believes in the name of God's Son possesses life possesses the gift of life in his name. May you have that gift and rejoice in that gift and know the reality of a living Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the account of Thomas and the lessons that can be learned. Lord, we often tend to just look upon the things our eyes see and to become discouraged, to become despairing, to become disconsolate, to become filled with a sense of dread and woe and danger and distress. But Lord, we're a people called to live in the certainty of the fulfillment of your promises in the Lord Jesus. That we're called to know that we're not people bound for death and destruction. We're people bound for life and glory. Help us to live in the light of what you've done in Christ as a people assured and confident that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Be pleased to open the eyes of anyone who's blind to the glory that's in Jesus by the power of the gospel. Reveal to them your son. And give them faith that they might believe in his name and have the life 
that he alone can give. We pray that you'd hear our prayers as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.